Welcome to AM Insider, a production of our own. In this podcast, we will have a series of informative discussions tackling the adoption of additive manufacturing, answering those burning questions and swapping experiences. Learn from experienced individuals on how innovation can push the boundaries of what is possible. Hey, and welcome to the podcast. My name is Justin Hopkins, and with me here as always is Dustin Klumpkin. Let's get inside AM. How are you doing today, Dustin? I'm doing great, and I'm looking forward to this next discussion. Yeah, I'm really looking forward to episode four. It's been a little while. We took a little bit of break. There was the holidays in between uh, the last episode that we did, but I'm glad that we're back. And I'm going to have you talk a little bit about what the topic is today, because this is uh, a topic that you you brought up to the, our attention and give us a little bit of background on it. You know, a, a lot of the things that we want to talk about are things that I think you and I find interesting and that we might get questions on either because we have our own questions or because other people are asking us questions. And something that comes up fairly frequently, especially at trade shows, I would say, is bioprinting. And a lot of people ask me, hey, what's the latest and greatest that's happening? What are the companies out there? How long is it going to take until I can you know, print a replacement organ, things like that? And so I, I reached out to one of my contacts here to see if he'd be willing to talk, and he, he did. So I'll be kind of curious to learn a little bit more about what he's been working on. And Justin, I'm sure you kind of get those kind of questions as well, right? Absolutely. And actually, recently I just watched Dr. Death. I'm not sure if either of you guys are familiar with it, but the second season of that is actually about a doctor that was uh, reprinting tracheas, right? And, and there wasn't a lot of background testing done. I love that Dr. Rainey. That's right. <laughs> so, I, maybe six years ago, I wrote a, a paper for a bioethics course, Don't Be Like Palo. And that was that was the concept of the paper. Sorry, sorry to interrupt. No, that's, that's, that's a good segue into introducing our guest today. So Dustin, since you guys have a history, I'll let you uh, do a little bit of introduction and we'll go from there. Yeah, absolutely. So I'll, I'll let Mike introduce himself, but I'll just say... I worked with him in a previous role, and I find him to be a very intelligent person from a lot of respects. And so I'm always excited and and kind of waiting at the end of my seat when Michael has something to say, because it's usually pretty smart and something I probably haven't thought of before. So with that, Mike, maybe you want to give a little bit of your history and the kind of wild ride you've been on so far? Justin, you flattered me. I'm blushing. Thank you. And thank you, Justin, also for inviting me to be here tonight. Me and Dustin met, it's got to be, what, eight or nine years ago now, initially in 3D printing. He was in an applications engineer role, was in tech support. Prior to that encounter, I had received a bachelor's degree in cell and molecular biology, but I took a pivot, got into 3D printing, where you know, me and Dustin. And, but then ultimately I moved on from there and we can talk about our time more there, Dustin, as we get into it. But then I went on to get my master's um, in stem cell biology at the University of Minnesota at their stem cell institute. Specifically, I wanted to take what I had learned working in the 3D printing industry with my prior knowledge of cell and molecular biology and start using biomaterials and cells as our, our bioinks and our hydrogels start 
working on biofabrication and 3D tissue models, working towards organogenesis. And that's the pathway I took. I never actually finished my master's in Minnesota because I moved on to my PhD in Ireland, in Dublin, Ireland. There was a lot of investment opportunities there, uh, a lot of public-private partnerships going on. And I, as a relatively young I'd never been to Europe, so I moved there to pursue my studies and continue bioprinting over there. And I'm really happy I did it. It was a lot of fun. I learned a lot of new techniques, new applications, met a lot of great scientists over there. And shortly after, I relocated back here to America. And this is where Dustin's reaching out and asking if we want to talk about bio on the podcast, which... As he knows, I'm I'm always more than happy to talk about bioprinting if if given the opportunity. Great, thank you for that intro. And you know, since kind of talking about both things here, and I know we haven't spoken that much for quite a while. You have a lot of experience with 3D printing, and now you have a lot of experience with bioprinting. For those listening in to learn that have the the background of 3D printing. What would you say is like one of the biggest differences between how you approach 3D printing versus printing in cells? So cells are high maintenance. They're, they have a very thin criteria of what they like and a very broad criteria of what they don't like, mainly being temperature, pH, what, what physical pressures you're putting them on. You know, when we look at thermal polymers and 3D printing, that's pretty straightforward. You, you send polymers through a hot glue gun and you push it through either pneumatically or mechanically with a screw or a, a drive motor. And it comes out at a fairly consistent rate. And a, a lot of these polymers and materials don't care what conditions you keep them at prior to or to some extent after printing with them. The cells are I like to say high maintenance. They they have a narrow temperature range. You need to keep them through relatively minimal forces you can exert on them compared to other materials you might be printing with. They're pH sensitive. They'll be light sensitive. I wouldn't recommend you cross-linking with live human cells or any type of mammalian cells. The UV light will cause damage to them for that reason we'll use blue light at 405 nanometers rather than a uv light and we'll we'll tailor our cross-linking chemistry within our biomaterials to to feed off of that criteria that the cells essentially dictate but there are there are a few different ones mainly temperature ph physical forces would be the big ones and we're normally confined by those time would be another big one when you went again using a thermopolymer, if I'm printing, it's when the print is done, my 3D object for the most part might require a little post processing, but it's it's done, it's ready to go. When I'm using cells and bioprinting, there's much more of a 4D component where time is, uh, is playing a role. Again, that's that's based off the cells needing time to differentiate, to, to divide, to mul- multiply, fill in a cavity or a, a platform scaffold that you put them in. Wow. Well, you know, I, I really don't know anything about 4D printing. So, you know. I find that hard to believe, Dustin. Fair point, but I feel like I really don't. But, you know, given all that, would you, 
Would you say, and, and this is probably just showing my unknowing of, of the industry, would you say that 4D printing the process is maybe where 3D printing was 30 years ago in that there's a lot more considerations and processes that you need to think about? I, I would imagine a lot of this stuff isn't super automated yet, but it's probably quickly catching up with a lot of the technology. Yeah, there's... Uh... It's a tough question to answer, but there's a few different parts, and especially when you're looking at biology and 4D print. You know, 4D printing is almost a broad category on its own. Yep. Think of a lot of shape, shape-changing materials would be classified into that. There's there's a few different ways to look at 4D printing, but as it pertains to biology and bioprinting. Yeah, we'd be interested in the shape-changing materials. We're, we're interested in, essentially, normally, the, the end goal is the physiology and what the cell ends up being, and therefore its form and function of what it's capable of doing. But to get there, we may take a few steps upstream and play with molecules and cell types that are, let's say, progenitor cells that then will seed into a scaffold. You know, when I was doing my PhD, we had something and then I'd seed it with cells afterwards, but then I'd let it sit in an incubator for a month. I wouldn't even, I'd, I'd give it fresh nutrient media every 48 hours, but otherwise I, I wouldn't mess with it for a whole month. And then wow. I would start to characterize it after a month went on. But but there's shorter time frame applications too. If you're looking at a shape changing chemistry, you know, you may print something in a flat sheet like shape and then curl it afterwards to become tubular. And that may be, you know, minutes after you print it compared to me waiting a month before I look at something I actually printed. Wow. I have so many questions. <laughs> I mean, a lot, but I'm going to start with a more basic setting there. So for, for listeners, like we have different listeners that have different ranges of knowledge. And so you're, you're referring to bioprinting. Can you kind of maybe walk us through like your background as far as the history of bioprinting that your knowledge of, is of it? And then like, what type of printing are you, I mean, you're saying bioprinting, but I want to relate that to like a like an FDM or like a powder-based machine. I'm assuming there's different types of bioprinting. Could you give a little yeah, bit of background and, on that? Uh, sure, but uh, that, that, that answer could easily take an hour. So <laughs> I'm going to cut a few corners there. Uh, because just like 3D printing is a term, and there's many different mechanisms of 3D printing, inkjet, droplet-based, you know, FDM, laser sintering, there's different classifications of methods and bioprinting would have the same architecture you know bioprinting is a term and typically well let me start with that saying there's different classes of bioprinting and when it, when i i came from thermoprinting like fdm and you know i was very familiar with sending a material spool through a hot extruder and extruding material out and to some extent bioprinting would work does work like that you know, I'd use a syringe. We'd have a syringe at 37 degrees Celsius with the hydrogel in there. And a hydrogel would be a biomaterial, normally collagen-based, very similar to the consistency of jello, retains a lot of moisture. And that moisture 
for part is to keep cells hydrated. Now you could bioprint with a hydrogel with or without cells in it, and that will dictate some of the hardware that you can use because if there's not cells in there, I can put a lot more forces on that. I can use a wider temperature range. I could maybe make a architecture, I could 3D print it and then cross-link it with a UV light if I wanted to prior to putting cells on there because I don't have to worry about this UV light damaging the cells, DNA at that point. But I can also, if I wanted to, encapsulate cells in that hydrogel. Or we could be using, and hydrogels are normally organic in composition, but there's plenty of bioprinting that goes on with inorganic and synthetic materials as well. So it's really, I like to think of it as printing with biocompatible materials because you're not always using cells in there. I do think as the the folks who are printing with cells in their material are, are kind of hardcore bioprinters, but myself included, there'd be other plenty of applications where you print with a biomaterial and then seed it with cells. And you would want to do that for a few different reasons. One of the main ones is a lot of these biomaterials are easier to manipulate when you don't have cells in them because they have the cells have that tight criteria for temperature, pH, pressure, osmotic pressure ranges uh, that you need to adhere to. If I take cells out of that equation, I can be more aggressive with the parameters that I'm printing with. And as I'm sure you folks know that changing your printing parameters can have a drastic outcome on your, your resolution, your, your print quality at the end of the day. So that's a big part of it. Uh, I like to think of it as 3D printing with biocompatible materials with or without cells. And then you have a few different ways to go about doing that. You could use a hydrogel in a syringe. You could use a hydrogel in an inkjet printer, piezoelectric ejector. Most way photoresins would behave. You can create a similar printing process. There are folks kind of the holographic printing where you'd have a vat of a photoresin and you're either spinning it or you're using multiple lasers to crosslink a in a biomaterial at a high rate of speed, but then those are typically limited to a homogeneous material type. Another perk of bioprinting or 3D printing with biological materials was multi-material printing and organizing of these different material types to create a specified pattern. Frequently in biology, they'll have different types of cells in close proximity to each other, and they may serve a different role and they may have different mechanical properties. If you look at your bone and your knee cartilage, they're attached to each other, they're right next to each other. They're similar, but they also, one's more softer, they behave differently, they, they, you know, the bone gets calcified, the cartilage shouldn't get calcified unless you're going through osteoarthritis. There's, there's differences there as well. And that's to say that you might wanna have like a cartilage biomaterial in one of your extrusion nozzles and an osteogenic bone hydrogel material in your other nozzle. And you might wanna have a third nozzle for removable support material that you can organize these architectures with and then dissolve away later or 
you know, just a different material type for a nearby tissue that you're trying to create a model with. Wow. I don't know about you, Justin, but I now feel stupid. <laughs> oh. Yeah, I mean, it's a lot to take in. I mean, it's like any avenue that you go down in, in the world of printing, whether it's Yeah, it's a loaded question. There's many different ways to go about 3D printing. Bioprinting would be no different. And we, we actually take advantage uh, a lot a lot of the same techniques. I mean, even the metal printers that, you, that you'd see different applications for, they're Folks are using, I should say large companies, are using metal printing in bone applications, you know, uh, bone grafts, um, titanium hip implants, uh, a bunch of different applications where they're, it's essentially 3D printing at that point, but then they're putting it, inserting it into the body and having cells engraft in it. And a lot of their surface topology, you know, I, I love the folks over at and and topology and all the companies working on surface topology and especially with the metal laser sintering because how you change that surface topology, the cells, that makes a big difference on the cells, how they recognize that material. If they recognize it as a foreign object and you'll get a fibrosis kind of scar tissue that forms around it, depending on how the cells perceive it. And that's, you know, a smooth sheet of plastic versus a micro etched metal or, or even a smooth piece of metal rather and a micro etched metal, your cells will perceive that differently and behave differently just on that little characteristic. So there, I mean, plenty of different types of bioprinting and they're all to some extent application driven, you know, for a bone, for a bone graft, those are orders of magnitude differ than other, you know, a hydrogel for a pancreas. And pan pancreas is one of the, the softest organs you would have compared to the bone, which is merely one of the stiffest in your body. So that's an interesting point, right? Because you, to me, being on the polymer side, and we also have metals, but I see, you know, you mentioned like hip replacements or, or parts of bone graft and I see it as just an application within metal printing. I never thought of it as an it's bioprinting. So is, you know, that's and, an interesting and, way to. And yeah, I, the metal stuff, I do seem more as 3d printing, but they're, when they're, you know, implanting it in a biological environment like that, and there is a feedback loop, you know, like the, the surface topology, they can tailor that to the way that the cells would prefer it. And they're, they're getting good results doing that. You know, it's just fixing to the, the surrounding tissue better and they're, they're getting less joints that are pulling out because of their topology and, and how the cells can engraft into that. And, you know, it's just more surface area for them to hold on to and, and anchor into. So I'm going to dumb this conversation down just a little bit here because I don't know who's all listening in, but, and, and maybe you know something about this, but maybe you don't, Mike, but lately a lot I've been reading about when it comes to this kind of stuff is printed meat or printed steaks in particular. I'm sure topic. I, well, I, you know, I've read a number of cases on it with some of these new newer, we'll say startups that are really trying to, you know, feed the world to some extent without yeah, it's a, creating, it's a you know, I, I, yeah. I keep up on the industry. You know, I, I went and had a job interview out in San Francisco maybe a year ago related to this. And essentially, I, you know, I have respect for the industry. I think they're 
trying to do something noble, you know, they're trying to, you know, solve world hunger and, you know, for, you know, people shouldn't be hungry. I I can get behind all that. But, you know, I also think, wow, Monsanto probably said a lot of the same things when when they're growing their big multinational business. Yeah. So, I mean, you you, got to watch out. And I, I look at it from a little skepticism because, you know, I, I'm trying to think of a good way to say this. I, I would, I would, I would want to see how they're making it before I would want to eat it myself. I would be skeptical of it, but that's me as a personal thing. It's, it's not like a rant mm-hmm. against the whole industry, but it's, it's pretty cool. And when I look at it from a medical perspective, we'd be doing a lot of similar applications. And, and I always, you know, I would always think, oh, if I was going to 3D print a, a nice steak, you know, how would I do it? And what type of, it's not all muscle cells, you know, there's connective tissues that you would want to incorporate and the fat molecules and the, the adipocytes that create the fat molecules, you know, that's where the flavor is, you know, you got to work some of those in. And then the texture, if it, if you don't have the right texture, you're like, yeah, some, some folks will eat it, but that's, that's got to be bang on. And but these are all, there's crossover with the medical applications because we mess, you know, I worked a lot with the cartilage and how cartilage interfaces with bone and the, the mechanical properties of your cartilage tissue. It's a little squishy. It behaves as a shock absorber. And we would tailor our 3D printing to, to hit certain mechanical properties related to how squishy it is. And, and to create like a, a good, you know, let's just say making taco meat would be easier than creating an A5 Wagyu right off the bat. <laughs> but there's definitely like... But I look, hey, my taco meat wouldn't be that hard to, to, to print or to create. And a lot of times you're just, it's almost like a, a bioreactor that they have to culture all these cells up, these different types, you know, adipocyte your your sarcomeres for your, your muscles and your myocytes. But then it's just organizing them through a 3D printer. That's very similar to what we might do in, in a medical application too, to organize these cells. Because, you know, if you were just to take all these random cells and throw them together by hand, you know, in a beaker, let's say, they wouldn't form the right patterns and the texture would be off. It wouldn't be right. If you really want to make like a proper steak tissue, you need to organize these. And even that would probably take a little time in an incubator to, you know, those cells, if you just put the cells down, they need an extracellular matrix, their environment, and the cells secrete that. You can add some of those proteins into your biomaterial. Like we were using collagen and hyaluronic acid as a biomaterial to, to, to work with in the past. You know, it's, it's all protein. So it's, a lot of the stuff's healthy to eat anyways, but some of your photo cross-linking molecules might not be as healthy. That would be a selection that you would have to look into. Essentially, you don't want to use any chemistry in your materials that would potentially harm someone who ingests your product. So that's a little different from the world that Dustin, you and I grew up in where you were not supposed to ingest some of these materials we were printing with. Yeah. So on the topic of materials, how much of 
it is synthetic material that like you would use and how much of it is like organic material or how, how does the material happen? I'd, I'd say similar to again, 3d printing. There, there are a lot of similarities the way material research, material development is an active ongoing job in many different fields. It's to some extent it's application driven, which I think you would see in traditional 3d printing. A lot of it's carbon-based, but it's not all carbon-based. A lot of it comes down to what the end application is. Some of it is electroconductive. Graphene's a popular one to work in for certain electroconductive applications related to bioprinting. A lot of it comes down to the stiffness, the mechanical modulus of the material, the compressive modulus, and the tensile modulus, how flexible a material is how hydrated a material can be. And then a lot of it's coming out of the universities, but they're doing traditional material research, R&D. And I think that's one of the reasons why we're not at bioprinting organs just right away. But if you look at our transition from a 2D Petri dish, where traditionally we're doing biological research, to where we started moving into 3D models and started using Essentially, as we were doing that, researchers realized that, hey, these cells that we were playing with in the Petri dish, they behave much differently in a 3D model, and they behave much more like they would in the human body than they do in a Petri dish. And a lot of that behavior is material dependent, and there are a lot of different types of bios. Collagen's a, a big one for the Organic ones, stuff like PEGDA, polyethylene glycol would be one for more of a synthetic material. But anything you can make into a soft, jelly-like material, uh, as long as it's not going to kill cells, people are looking at that for biomaterials. There's, there's a whole different classifications. And then a lot of people will start with a kind of general, like is a general biomaterial. And then they'll add special components to it to make it more suited for certain applications. You know, bone applications are putting a lot of calciums and hydroxyapatite's a big one. Molecules that will calcify and become stiffer over time as they evolve. So speaking of applications, it was probably around... 2018, I would guess, I was at the Additive Manufacturer User Group Show or AMUG, and I went to a show there or, or a presentation. And the presenter at the time, they said that at the time, based on the current trends, they believe that within 10 to 15 years, they'd be able to print a heart. How far off do you think we are? Or have we already? You know, people will claim to have printed a heart. To some extent, Dustin, me and you have printed hearts. I, I know, but they, uh, they, they haven't okay. worked that well. Functioning hearts, how's that? And and I always remember the one I used to keep at my desk was rather fragile. And people yeah. would always say, I don't want to break. I and still I have mine. It's okay if you break my heart, I could just <laughs> print another one. You guys had so much fun. <laughs> but we're getting closer. The heart, the, And the heart's an interesting one because... You know, it's it's not the low-hanging fruit. We're going to start with tissues yep. before we go to fully functioning organs. They're, they're, it's an easier target to hit. And 
because the heart, it's, it's, it's not as complicated in its architecture and creation, but to get all those cells to beat in unison with the fidelity required for a heart to never fail over years of use, that's going to take some optimization, shall I say. Um, but other other tissue, you know, bone grafts are going to be to some extent the metal stuff's already there. But but better synthetic materials that you know will will incorporate into the body. Your body will break it down and bioabsorb it rather than an inert piece of plastic that's going to be stuck there or metal that's going to be stuck there for the rest of your life. We're seeing a lot more biocompatible materials, bioabsorbable, biodegradable materials. And tissues will be first. And, you know, lab-grown meat is a great topic. And that's that's related to, like, do the folks who have muscular dystrophies, like Duchenne's muscular dystrophy, there could be a lot of crosstalk between getting them, you know, essentially a good steak is mostly muscle and some other connective tissue. But getting artificial fibers strong and functional, there will be crosstalk between the lab-grown industry and, you know, trying to prevent Duchenne's muscular dystrophy. What are some other applications? The lungs will be one that's, you know, I worked in a pulmonary lab when I was doing my master's in Minnesota, and that's a that's a popular one that they're looking at. But as far as the heart, that's 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 going to be a little bit, but it's it, it's coming. And and the tricky thing is some of these sometimes and I, this again with 3D printing, sometimes you need to look at an application and say is 3D printing or an automatic bioprinting the proper way to go about doing this? Or is there a different manufacturing or biomanufacturing method that might be more suited to your application? Surely you must have had a, a talk with a few customers along these lines in the past, Dustin. Yeah, absolutely. It, it's, it goes with that same adage of just because you can doesn't mean you should necessarily. So I think that's a fair point. And, and that's why I kind of ask it because is that still kind of the industry's initiative to kind of, we'll say print replacement parts for you, or has it kind of shifted to some extent and saying, well, you no, know, maybe it's, we focus it's, a, more it's a friendly competition, you know, okay. <laughs> you have multiple parties out and we're all trying to hit the same goal, but you're all trying to help people and uh-huh. increase their quality of life. And no, no, as long as the target hasn't been solved yet, you know, it's just friendly banter and competition, but you have different classes and like take the heart, for example, or any tissue, you could start from nothing and try bioprinting it, or you can take an organ and hit it with some soaps and detergents, which will rupture the cells and you can rinse all the cells out of an organ and you're left with you know, the white walker protein matrix that still resembles uh, an organoid and benefits a lot of function to those cells that then you could seed cells on there, let them perforate through this sponge-like looking material that's all in your protein structure and repopulate that. Mira Matrix in Minnesota would be a good example of a company doing something like this. They have a, a lot of products in their pipeline that, that, Look at liver and kidney function along these lines. Decel an organ from either a donor or an animal and recellularizing it with, with human tissue. 
And it's, are they going to make a kidney prior to the bioprinters making a kidney? I think it's a friendly competition because at the end of the day, the one who gets it first, it's better for the patient or, or ideally better for the patient or who could make them the best product. You know, maybe one group would get there first. Maybe the other group could make a, a better product, but it's good to have that competition because it's going to lead to better treatments for a variety of different disease physiologies out there. So with the comment that you said, who can get there first? So getting there is one thing, right? But like like you mentioned at the beginning, don't be like Paulo. How much testing has to happen once you kind of have printed something that you, you want? I mean, you have to go through some sort of regulations, right? So once an organ has been printed, what, what happens? I mean, someone prints it, how, how much testing has to happen? Uh, I guess it kind of depends on what part of the body it might be or could, could you shed a little bit of light on maybe some of the regulation side of it? Yeah. And no, and that's, that's, a, that's a whole nother segue. And making, <laughs> making an object is one thing. And then your go-to-market strategy is where this kind of comes into play. There is a big regulator in, the, in between you and the market for, for justifiable reasons. But ideally, you want to organize your, your pathway to be regulator-friendly. And to some extent, that's so like my PhD application, we would 3D print with biocompatible, bioabsorbable materials, and we would add even more biocompatible materials onto that scaffold. And then we would seed it with human bone marrow derived stem cells. And the reason we were, and we were doing this all in a lab, you know, bench top science. And the reason we weren't bioprinting with cells directly is because we were looking at the regulator and essentially we were creating a medical product, uh, product, but we were planning on using the patient's own cells. Essentially, say you had bad cartilage, the surgeon would go in, they would scrape away the bad cartilage in one of your major, major particular joints, your knee, your hip, your shoulder. So they would clean up the wound because your cartilage is not going to repair itself. It's incapable in that particular cartilage. So the surgeon would scrape away the bad cartilage and then they would drill down to your subchondral bone and they would release your patient specific, it's your own cells, release you from your bone marrow. And then we have this mechanically reinforced bioactive material that we would then anchor down and suture down into that defect region that the surgeon cleaned up. And then it's kind of like a sponge that would suck up the cells and it's your own cells and then they'll differentiate into chondrocytes which will create new cartilage but that's an easier regulatory pathway than using cells or you know i would have to take cells from dustin and then convince the regulators that i should inject them into justin and you know the regulator would have a much much more questions about those Whereas if I'm using the patient cells and putting them back into the patient's body, they're not going to reject it. Whereas a cell source that's not from the patient, allogeneic cell source, uh, you run the risk of host first graft disease where your body rejects it and your immune system fights it off. And whatever you bioprint and put in that patient, their body's going to attack it because they see it as foreign tissue. Yeah, that makes a lot but, of sense. Yeah. But to bring up you know it's in the regulators are just doing their job and if they're not there 
you have folks like Paolo Maccarini, who is 3D printing something, a trachea that he claims. He, they don't extensively, extensively characterize it and validate that it's working. And they just start implanting it into patients and their kit, and he's killing all his patients. The only mm-hmm. one of his patients who survived was the one patient who removed the trachea out. And every other patient, to my knowledge, uh, died, fortunately. And it, it's really sad because not all of these patients needed these procedures. They could have survived. It, it wasn't like a life or death thing where they had to get it. Some of them could have. It, it wouldn't have been like the 100% ideal life. They, they had a trachea uh, damage, but they were surviving on it on their own. And they didn't need a replacement trachea. Yeah, watching it was like mind blowing to me, right? It was just, well, at first I, I didn't know what I was getting into. And then it was like, oh my gosh. And it's, it's just like, wow, how does something like that happen? You know? And I, I, from my perspective, from public view, it's like people read a little bit, you know, you get a little bit of highlights of, oh, we printed some cartilage where we, we did this in bioprinting, but I feel like it's high level stuff on the surface that people are, kind of interested like like Dustin asked about an organ it's just there's probably so much more that that you've already sort of discussed and more beyond that that's that's actually happening that gets you to that point and then you you see something like that happen and it's like oh my gosh it, it, it almost question it makes me question like why are we printing or you know and that's why I asked the regulation question like what's the proper procedure you know and how could you know why why should something like that happen you know or not happen yeah and there's there's a few ways there's a few routes to market and essentially if you're there's a there's a carve out there's a niche route for small off you know not not big batch sizes of medical products you know if surgeon someone's in a life or death situation a surgeon has a little bit of flexibility to try a new innovative device or procedure but it's not like that surgeon can open up a clinic and do that new novel device day in and day out without having a clinical trial so there's that's one aspect of it but if you want to do something and that's to orthopedics would be an area that that started into and orthopedics is a changing landscape because of that or or kind of because of 3d printing and how easy it is to change a design with 3D printing and additive manufacturing. You've seen this a lot in the, the metal, you know, with Stryker, big metal printing companies like that, with the replacement joints that they're making, the hips, the pelvis, and they're tailoring it for a more patient-specific fit. I know the Hospital of Sick, what's it? Hospital of Special Surgeries out in uh, Manhattan. It was big on that and kind of, dare I say, challenging the FDA's rule of what kind of procedures you had to go through to bring a new device to, to market. And essentially, HSS was saying they validate their materials and they validate their manufacturing process. And if they want to make a small change, you know, to better, you know, you're, you're talking about changing an implant so that it would fit a patient better. It's not a major change, and they they wanted some leniency and some leeway to to make a more personalized product. But once you make like 
I, and I'm not an expert totally on, on the regulation. So, so you, you might have to check this. It's like, once you make more than five, it's like four or five, you, you go into a different purview of the FDA. You can get away with that a handful of times, but if you start doing that too much, the FDA will come after you for not having a licensed product. They're going to say all these new products that you have, they're not licensed. You, uh, you can't be doing that. But that that landscape is starting to change with metal 3D printers in particular. But for the the biological material, the more softer biocompatible materials, and using cells, there's there's a lot of animal animal clinical preclinical trials going on. And initially, we designed something in the lab. We tested it out on the bench. You might have a 3D model system in vitro on the bench top. And then typically we're still using animal models to test out our new products. AI is coming into the mix a little bit. You know, they want to reduce the amount of animal trials that are needed, which is, you know, understandable for, for many reasons. But at the same time, we still need those animal models because the AI system isn't perfect. And then once you're seeing good progress in the animal models, then you, you start going into first and human. You start doing your clinical trials, just like you would most other regulatory pathways with the FDA, like a, similar to a medical device. Awesome. So when you say AI trials, is, is that just like simulating it within yeah. a software? Yeah, essentially uh, simulating it. And again, if we're using a, a bone scaffold, you know, out of a thought softer biological material, not a, not a metal one, something that's supposed to absorb into your body or, or be biodegradable, you might want to change the parameters, you know, the thickness of your struts, the molecular weight of the polymers that you're using to make it stiffer or softer in some areas. And you, you know, depending how, how smart you are, you know, you got to be way smarter than me to understand some of these mechanical forces that are going to come from all different directions and how and your application, pro, your, your manufacturing process of that biomaterial, how it will hold up in these different scenarios. It, it's kind of like a, gen, or a generative design and it's a feedback loop between designing something, testing it, analyzing the data, and then making a change to your model, testing it. And it, it's a feedback loop. And the AI can help with that a lot. But there's also a lot of un unknowns. And currently, animal models are still preclinical models, kind of tested it in, a, in an animal system, and then go on to human trials from there. Starting small with the human trials, you do a safety run. And then you start looking at efficacy, you know, you scale up your trials as you go and gain success and momentum. Wow. And now it's time for layers of information. So I want to take just a slightly different track here for a second. So Michael, since, I mean, like I mentioned before, we haven't talked very much for a while and I, you've been deep into this stuff, obviously. So Without naming names, what would you say are some of the most innovative applications that you're coming across or you're hearing about in this space? And and when you talk about it, try to keep it in like the layman's terms because not everyone uh, has been studying this stuff quite quite like you have, obviously. That's that's tough, and I always get excited by the functional stuff. And even this was even me in three D saying, 
you could design something that looked cool and I could, I could appreciate it. But I always liked the stuff that maybe didn't look as cool, but it was functional and mm-hmm. it worked really well. That's what I, I see myself catching the attention. And I, what's going to work well in bioprinting? Or what are you finding that's exciting that exciting. you're reading about and that is like, wow, that's a really cool approach or that's interesting or I never thought about that perspective? Yeah, it doesn't I, have to work yet. Yeah, I would say I would say like in general, our understanding of biomaterials is getting much better, much quicker, like at an exponential rate. And yeah, and some material properties, you you look at stuff, but then it's it's our architecture and how we organize those. You know, we're not just using a solid block of collagen. We're creating a microporous architecture, and that's tunable. And how we tune that, like the our, our manufacturing parameters, how those influence our outcomes at the end, and then our feedback loop that we're learning from those. I find that very interesting, and it's it's quickly broadening. Like once I wouldn't say it's an issue, but it's you know it needed to be addressed, and we're learning a lot about these biological materials, how cells in. A, how the biological materials behave when we put them in these weird shapes and geometries, but then how cells and tissues and our bodies interact with them. We're learning a lot about that. We're going to see, you know, a lot of changes coming from that, a lot of regenerative medicine and how we get people to heal quickly and faster. It's, it's, It's going to be exciting. So is this just because we have more processing power and big data, or is this because there have been more recent studies on this subject? But I, I think more so the, the second option, and okay. people are doing the studies and looking at them now. Before, there wasn't interest, there wasn't as much funding, everything was in 2D. Like 2D biomaterial is pretty straightforward to quantify. Part of it is the multidisciplinary aspect of this. You know, the biologists weren't always hanging out with the mechanical engineers and the software programmers. People are finally starting to look at these in these uh, core research facilities where you'd have all these different disciplines that are hanging out together and working collaboratively together. That that was kind of novel. You know, it took a few years for these different institutions and centers to, to, you know, this doesn't happen overnight. And these funding pipelines to open up to do this research, this multidisciplinary research, and the collaboration, the worldwide collaboration has been great because researchers from all over the world, they could identify some of the issues, some of the boundaries to progress, but there was a lot of work to be done. And, you know, Identifying the issue is one thing, but then going through and doing all the science, the rigorous science to go around and characterize these and to do it in a way where you could compare it to people over in Japan and Australia and, you know, Brazil, apples to apples, oranges to oranges. It, it, it took a while, but we're getting there. And a lot of these facilities are, are set up and they're doing great work now. And because of, you know, those struggles early on were making a lot of progress. And I'd be hesitant to say progress, but our understanding of these biomaterials is accelerating so quickly. Mm. And because we have s- such a greater understanding, the progress then will, will be shortly coming. And we are making progress, just to clear, but it'll be accelerating. 
Okay. So then, you know, just looking forward a little bit um, from an application standpoint or an innovation standpoint, however you want to take this, but what do you think will be the next breakthrough application or breakthrough moment for 4D printing or printing in cells or, or, or however you want to classify it? And, and why do you think it hasn't happened yet? Ooh, that's that's tough. You know, it's it's. Let me get my bingo board and, and what's the uh, Mister? What do I have on bingo? And but you know, is it the retina, like the the corneal transplants in the eye? Is it the the patient tailored orthopedic hips and knees? You know, I, I like these bioabsorbable rather than the metal materials. The softer, the bioabsorbable. You know, they'll. they'll Say you're a young child and you you have a big orthopedic you know issue. I'd rather put something that's going to dissolve away in a body over time. You know you're putting in a scaffolding structure that your cell is going to incorporate and and grow into, and ultimately that scaffold that we put in there will dissolve over time, and you'll be left with only the patient's body parts there. I like that more, especially for a younger younger patient that's growing still, has room to grow, than, you know, an orthopedic application where you're completely cutting out human tissue and replacing it with metal tissue that will be there forever, can never change shape or size, can't grow with the patient, will loosen up over time and kind of fall out over 15, 20 years potentially. The softer biomaterials have a lot of potential for that. I find that exciting. And then functional. You know, there's different things like just because it looked one way when it, you know, the way we humans create something, we might have a biosyn product that we end up implanting into patients that doesn't quite look what the original organ or tissue does, but it might serve in the same function. Diabetes is a is a is a good one where the pancreas, you know, your your beta cells which produce insulin are in the pancreas. And if you have issues with your pancreas, you might we want a new pancreas. But a, a bioprinted pancreas might not exactly look like a normal pancreas. But if your end goal is to have a tissue that can sense your blood sugar and produce insulin accordingly. Do you care if it looks like the original pancreas or do you care if it's able to regulate your insulin levels so you're no longer diabetic? That's that's curious to me too. If you can get the function and it doesn't quite match up with the previous form, but is that okay? Is that not okay? There's different applications where, you know, orthopedics, you want it to kind of look the same or and you could potentially be superhuman, you know. Can we over-engineer something and can we give you super abilities better than what you had previously? What problem are you trying to solve? Yep. Yep. For sure. Our last uh, episode was very similar in the sense of like, does it need to look a certain way and and in order for it to function? And a lot of times it's like, it, it doesn't really need to be the most beautiful thing ever. It just needs to work. <laughs> I'm always attracted to the functional sure. applications. You know, some, it could be overly complex or it could be really simple, but if it works, I like the simple, simple application. If it works well, if it's reliable, it makes me smile. Yeah, I would agree with you on that one. <laughs> so what, in, what, what, do you, what inspires you? What do you think that, you know, 
what's going to be the next thing that you want to push towards within your work that you do every day? What gets you excited? Oh, I mean, what gets me out of bed in the morning, huh? Um, in the past, I was I was fortunate enough to be in the right place at the right time and have the right skill set. And not everyone else was looking to do the applications that I wanted. And I I was concerned that no one would if if I didn't get up and contribute and you know help drive the needle forward. Now there's definitely more momentum in the industry. So I wouldn't say that's my biggest motivating factor, but ultimately we want to help someone, patients and people, whether it's a lab grown meat and you're, you're, you know, preventing people from starving or you're, you know, trying to make a new pancreas. So there's not as many diabetics in the world, in the world. Ultimately you're using your applications and skill sets and efforts to try and help people. And I find that to be really rewarding. But you got to be uh, sober about that. You know, we're, we're, we're not going to print a, a, a bioprinted heart overnight that's going to be functional for more than a 10-year reliability lifespan. So, I mean, you, you got to be okay with a little bit of slow progress. We'll, we'll get there over time. But, you know, making progress, unlocking new applications, like the field is still growing and growing. And we're still finding new ways of making things and technology is getting better. The, the biomaterials are getting better. Our resolution that we can achieve with these biomaterials used to be a little messy. They didn't like to hold their shape as much, but we're getting better ways of manufacturing and increasing our resolution. We're, we're still making progress. So just to expand on that a little bit, because I'm sure we have a, a number of people listening in that are maybe looking to get into the industry or, you know, grow into the industry. And given that, you know, my network of people in this space is pretty small. I mean, you're, you're, you're the guy for me, at least in this space. If someone was trying to get into the bioprinting space from your perspective right now, what kind of skills or experiences or certifications do you think that they would need to be successful and why? You just need a great <laughs> attitude. Come on, come sign, on. Sign me up. <laughs> Seriously, nothing. Like, if you want to get involved, you can get involved. The, the barriers of entry are like dropping rapidly. And like when I wanted to get into it, I was just aggressive. You, you got to be a little aggressive. And, you know, I, I had a four year degree when I started looking at bioprinting. But that that wasn't enough, you know. You needed a PhD to to if you wanted to actually lead any applications. And in getting into a PhD program, like I couldn't get into a PhD program, and I just started reading these science review papers initially to understand the field what I could and kind of see where the limitations of the field at the time were. And then I'd start emailing the authors of the paper, and you know, whenever you reach out to a scientist and you're like, Hey, I read your paper to some extent. Like they love hearing that. Oh, they, they're happy that people are reading their work and uh, you just kind of, it's almost like cold calling. I was cold calling these professors saying like, I have this knowledge of 3d printing and this eagerness to get into bioprinting. And I, I know a little bit about biology. Uh, I see you're working in X, Y, Z. I find that really fascinating. Do you have any, you know, room for me to volunteer? I mean, I was looking at volunteering 
I wasn't even, I, I tried volunteering in some labs and I was still getting shut down. Wow. Uh, <laughs> wow. But, but, you know, just don't give up. And the attitude, the attitude of the individuals is super important. And biology, you're going to, you know, your experiments aren't always going to work. There, there is a l- large amount of failure and you have to stay optimistic. And, you know, it's a lot of hard work. But if you're eager and willing to do the work and you express genuine interest and like the wanting to, it's okay that you're not an expert right away. But if you're willing to learn and eager to learn, there will be people out there who will be willing to give you a shot. Great advice. So with with bioprinting, one last question for me, where are the, you know, you're, you're talking about different scientists is, and for me, my my mind like frames around like, could be stratasys it could be 3d systems on on the polymer side like who is the company or three companies that you think are the ones to work for or is it just an individual oh geez you're gonna get me in trouble with that one (laughs) i i I know a lot of the founders and folks at these companies that i've caused issues in the past in public comments about company a and then their competitor company b is calling me up the next day and and, you know we're not saying any of them are better than others just ones that (laughs) similar you know it's just a friendly competition you know i try and say agnostic i like to see the whole industry progress and well it's a small you know i was always surprised by how small of a community it is and even worldwide it's you know and that's that's another reason to be genuine. And if you're, you're willing to work hard and like push the needle, there, there are companies all over the world who are great work opportunities. And a lot of the, the innovative, you know, the bigger the company is, dare I say, the less innovative they would be, the smaller companies are where you're seeing a lot of the innovation. And then they may get acquired by the bigger companies, you know, once they kind of start posing a competitive risk to the bigger companies there there have been a lot of acquisitions over the last five years of predominantly biomaterial companies and i know a few biomaterial companies that sell 3d printers almost as a venue for selling their biomaterials or at least that's how they got into the industry so then just to kind of ask that a different way, I mean, I, I haven't done any research, but last I heard Organovo is kind of the the lead company in this space. Have there been, are there other strong competitors that are out there kind of competing now with Organovo? I might get yeah, them in trouble. I would say so. so. May, maybe a better way to say it is, is if I wanted to research it, where's the one place to go? To learn them all, <laughs> yeah. Oh, geez, I don't, uh, and uh, you know, three three uh, D systems was doing good stuff, and they they I'll give them credit because they were making large investments into bioprinting. You know, to some extent, and um, Dustin, uh, I'm sure you can confirm this. Some of the larger three D printing companies were hesitant of investing in bioprinting as a serious investment in like R and D pipeline. But I do give 3D Systems one for for investing, and their technology platform was very compatible with it as well. But you know, it's it's not just Organovo and what's a Dimension Inc. out in Chicago. They recently got a FDA approval for for some sort of trial for their their bone material, and a lot of it's biomaterial. So it, it, I wouldn't say it's the hardware companies driving it. I would say it's the 
biomaterial companies driving it, and then, you know, they're application-specific. So there's really uh, a flat playing ground, I guess. The different medical applications require different biomaterials, and there's, like, a bunch of different little niches that you can be in. And there's, you know, it's not a direct head-to-head competition because one biomaterial would be better suited for one application and a different yeah. biomaterial is better suited for a different an, another application. So there's plenty of room for, you know, to, to hedge your bets, you know, for, for, for plenty of companies to make progress in this space. Okay. So then, you know, again, thinking of our audience here, you know, for maybe some of the newer people or maybe the more experienced people, from your perspective, Mike, what, what do you think is one top-notch resource that you think everyone should know about in this space? It could be a course, it could be a magazine, it could be an article. I mean, what kind of comes to mind? What, what are you reading? Where are you getting your information? Oh, geez. I, I don't know if I should say this, but Sci-Hub, the online database that lets you download academic articles. Huh. Uh, one, I remember one until I was in academia after working at Stratus. Uh, it was difficult. If you're not in academia, to read cutting edge advances in the field, with with it's hard to get the academic literature, the scientific articles. If you're not part of an institution, a lot of times it might be like 30 to $50 per article if you want to download it. And that's very cost prohibitive uh, for a lot of young, eager people who want to like look at the, the cutting edge advancements or get a better understanding of the field. There's a lot of review articles. That's a great place to start. And then if you find an application or a field, subfield that you like, you can drill down deeper. But I love reading scientific review articles because they, they set a nice landscape uh, and then you could tune in your your attention from there. Uh, and they'll have references, you know, skimming through the references at the end of the, the scientific articles is where you're going to find more relevant topics. Uh, and that's where you're going to notify notice where the labs are. You know, these there's certain labs around the world and there's a bunch of them now. But different labs have their different expertise and there's there's hotbed zones. You know, I'm sure Boston has uh, plenty of great bioprinting companies out there, Dustin. Mm. But there's you start reading, Okay, where in the world are these people cranking out these applications? Australia has a lot of acoustic like 3D, 4D printing where they're using sound waves to move the move the cells around cool. and, uh, with the biomaterials. But it's, it's kind of goofy that that's not as popular in other parts of the world. There's, you know, Melbourne, Australia is, is and Wollongong, uh, Australia are coming out with those. But through reading these review papers and other scientific articles, that's where you can see where the, the cutting edge facilities are. And if you're looking to get, you know, into academia or learn more about it you know those are great places to network that's that's what i did i when i was trying to get in i read a lot of scientific articles and then i was you know emailing the professors from the articles that i was reading trying to learn more seeing seeing if they had opportunities in their lab if they didn't did they know like other people you know in related fields that would have opportunities in their labs and they're just networking from there. Wow. That's great. Great advice. 
So one last thing, I know we've been asking a lot of the questions, but is, is there anything that's kind of come to your mind that you want to make sure to to talk about or hit on or, or mention? Oh, no, uh, the expectations. It's good to have modest expectations. And Dustin, when we were working back in 2014 to, was it 2017 you left? or Yep. Late, you know, we went through peak with 3D printing where they thought everyone, you know, you're not going to use a dishwasher to wash your coffee cup. You're just going to 3D print a coffee cup and everyone's going to have one. Uh, and that expectation fell down. And, uh, there was loss of confidence in the industry a little bit, but it's to some extent people just had slightly unrealistic expectations of how quickly things were going to change. And bioprinting is sort of like that. You know, people are wondering, oh, you you haven't 3D printed a working heart yet. You know, it's been so many years now. What are you guys doing over there? Try it out but, yourself uh, and see what happens. <laughs> but it, you got to balance that with the, the Palomacarini story. Be like, well, when we move too quickly, people start dying. You know, if uh, we'll get to the heart, but there's, you know, there's, there's a lot of material R&D science that's been going on in the background. But it's really and standardizations to get the academics from around the world all on the same on the same page with how they're designing their assays and and characterizing their biomaterials so that you can make references from one scientist study to a different one and it's it's comparable. We're really starting to get on the same page, and that you know things will accelerate, but it'll take some time still. Now we got to go through the proper trials, the regulatory approvals, the process. We really got to vet this stuff out if we want to do it in a safe way, which can be frustrating at times. You know, some people are anxious. I get it. Life's short, but we're, we're making progress. Hang in there. That's, that's a great point. You know, from what you just said, it's like the excitement of wanting to drive an industry further and getting everybody on the same page. I mean, we, Dustin and I face that uh, a lot since we do a lot of work in orthotics and prosthetics. And um, it's, it's a similar situation. And it's like, what are you, how are you going to test this? You know, what's the proper way to test this? And, and if we are going to get this adopted, which some of it has, how, how do we make sure that there's some cohesiveness to what everybody's doing? So it is safe and that you're not going too fast, even though it seems like it's been a long time. In retrospect, it's moving very quickly, and it seems like the same thing with the field that you're in. Definitely. And don't get me wrong, there's there's still a little bit of the wild, wild west in, in the industry. There, there, there aren't always laws uh, in place. Sometimes we're, we're, we're beating the laws, so there, there just aren't laws to regulate certain spaces. And, you know, we're, we kind of have to act, you know, as adults, but, you know, with the the best interests of some patients. There was another topic that just slipped my mind. The onics you mentioned. Well, yeah. It, it makes me think of, you know, 3D printing fi firearms. You know, that was way out in front and, and that was came out, what, almost 10 years ago now. And, and now we're just starting to see legislation around it, or at least I am in the state that I li live in, where they're talking about, you know, ghost firearms and 3D printed devices and stuff like that. And so it's a big machine. It takes a long time to kind of get up to speed on things. 
Yeah, I agree. And, you know, time will tell. Hopefully there's not too many tragic stories. Hopefully there's more uh, happy endings. And, you know, in general, I think this industry will help a lot of people. There might be a few speed bumps along the way, a few bad apples. But in general, I think the this this industry poses more of a benefit to humanity than, than a risk. Yeah. Yeah. Don't let a few mistakes define an entire industry for sure. <laughs> okay. Do you have any other questions for Dustin and I that you w- would want to know since you've kind of been out of the polymer space or maybe you still follow it or? Um, no. What's, what are you most excited about in the next, next year and then next long-term in 3D printing? You, you know, for me, what I'm seeing is the digital workflow um, is starting to consolidate. And what I mean by that is uh, in the past and, and still currently, sometimes let's say you're, you're scanning something. I mean, we'll talk orthotics and prosthetics to be able to scan, say, your wrist, clean up the data from the scan, actually create a device that, for like a wrist orthosis and then print it and finish it. Each one of those steps were usually disjointed, made by a different company, didn't talk to each other, and you had to, you know, kind of become a specialist in each thing. And and what I'm seeing now, and for the people who are using it, they'll say it's going too slow, but to Justin's point, it's moving pretty fast. A lot of these different systems and workflows are starting to talk with each other and work with each other all in one seamless way. And so I think that's not only going to help just that space, but so many other spaces. And so it gets me excited because then that makes it accessible to a lot of other people. And and further, you know, I, I think of like the new Apple Vision goggles that are coming out tomorrow, I believe. In fact, you can start buying them or at least seeing them in the stores. I believe that that will start to unlock design and CAD capabilities um, so that you don't need to be, and I say this in the most endearing way, but a CAD monkey to be able to make the, the most beautiful design. I don't know for sure, yeah, but I, I would imagine you could maybe make it with your hands or something like that by wearing goggles, which makes it, it so much more accessible. And that's great to hear you say that because, you know, I think you had more of a CAD background than I did. I came in with a biology degree when I started 3D printing. And, you know, I, I worked with Chris and he was a, he was a CAD monkey. He's a wizard. And, you know, I got into doing the MRIs and the CT scans back in those days, I would hop around through eight different programs as I'm taking a patient DICOM series and adjusting it and scanning it and thresholding and cleaning it up, cleaning it up. It might take me days just to clean it up. And Versalia. So, so, yeah. And this, you know, a great Portuguese, Brazilian software, uh, but but that's you know it's great to hear that they're unifying and I got into that because I didn't have the CAD skill but I knew that MRIs were accurate at measuring things and you know I was interested in making anatomical models and one one final thought I, I remembered what I forgot earlier we didn't talk much about it but dentistry dentists is where you'll see some of the biggest innovations in bioprinting because they're already experimenting with the biological materials and they kind of have a weird little niche cut out with the regulate regulatory industry and the uh, regulators and um, the way that a lot of dentists are small private practices compared to larger hospitals which are more centralized in their their ownership the dentists will drive innovation 
and I think we'll see a lot of cool biomaterial, cool applications, and that'll be a foyer for other applications using similar biomaterials, biocompatible, bioabsorbable, cell-based materials. So I'd, I'd keep an eye on the dentistry spaces is what I'm saying. Well, that's really interesting you say that because I just read, you know, I think it was last week or last month that they successfully regrew teeth in the lab where it can self-repair. Had you, have you heard it, about this at all? I, I Back in... 2010, I remember reading a paper, it wasn't bioprinting, but they were they were taking cells from your teeth region, periodontal ligament stem cells, and seeding them on scaffolds, you know, micropore scaffolds that were shaped as a tooth. Wow. And this was big back then, like 20, 2009, 2000, but it was, it was very promising technology back then. So I'm I wouldn't be the least bit to say surprised to hear that it's progressed quite a ways since then. And I believe it. And you put it in one of the best incubators, which would be the human body, and let those cells that already have the genetic programming do what they do and function as teeth. But then also, dentistry is going to be big because there's a lot of demanding forces in there. There's a lot of bacteria in there. Like it's it's not a very clean environment. You're putting a lot of mechanical load under it. You need stiff materials. I think we lost you for a second. Oh yeah, sorry about that. There you uh, go. I was just saying dentistry. They're gonna they're gonna drive it forward. Stiff materials, a lot of bacteria in there. It's a harsh environment. They're gonna they're gonna make some great stuff though. Really cool. Wow. Yeah. Okay. Well, we'll wind it down here. I, I you know, it's been. I have to thank you. This has been really a pleasure to learn from the things that you spoke about today. Uh, I feel like I have to call you on a regular basis now to to learn more. I'm not, <laughs> I'm not so sure I'm going to go find all the academic papers and, and read through. <laughs> well, that's but. that's fine. I'm I'm going to be following this <laughs> podcast closely now, and I'm excited <laughs> to see all your episodes. And this is how I'm going to be keeping tabs on the the ever broadening industry of 3d printing you know it's it's a mountain to keep up on all the innovations yeah. but it's great to catch up with individuals like yourselves who, who know a good about a good bit about it and as dustin knows i'm always happy to talk about bioprinting so feel free to reach out whenever yeah we we most certainly will or i will for sure <laughs> yep yeah it's it's been a pleasure thank you michael for, for joining you, us justin and dustin but yeah, thank you, thank you again for for joining us and to everybody who's listening. We'll we'll see you next time and hope you enjoyed this episode. Thanks for listening and if you enjoyed this episode and you'd like to help support the podcast, please share it with others. Post about it on social media or leave a rating and review. To catch all the latest from AM Insider, you can follow us on LinkedIn at AM Insider or send us an email at justin at aminsider.org or dustin at aminsider.org. Thanks again, and I'll see you next time.